Hey everybody, this is Ruben, and you're listening to Amazing Stories. Chapter 1 I warn you that what you're starting to listen to is full of loose ends and unanswered questions. It will not be neatly tied up at the end, everything resolved and satisfactorily explained. Not by me it won't, anyway. Because I can't say I really know exactly what happened, or why, or just how it began, how it ended, or if it has ended. And I've been right in the thick of it. Now, if you don't like that kind of story, I'm sorry, and you'd better not listen to it. All I can do is tell what I know. For me, it began around six o'clock a Thursday evening, October 28, 1976, when I let my last patient, a sprained thumb, out the side door of my office, with the feeling the day wasn't over for me. And I wished I weren't a doctor, because with me, that kind of hunch is often right. I've gone on a vacation, certain I'd be back in a day or so, as I was for a measles epidemic. I've gone to bed staggering tired, knowing I'd be up in a couple of hours driving to a house call. As I did, have done often, and will again. I still make house calls, and so do plenty of others. Now, at my desk, I added a note to my patient's case record, and I took the medicinal brandy, went to the washroom, and mixed a drink, something I almost never did. But I did that night, and standing at the window behind my desk, staring down at Throckmorton Street, I sipped it. I'd had an emergency appendectomy and no lunch that afternoon and felt irritable. I still wasn't used to being at loose ends, and I wished I had some fun to look forward to that evening for a change. So when I heard the light rapping on the outer locked door of my reception room, I just wanted to stand there motionless till whoever it was went away. In any other business, you could do that, but not in mine. My nurse had gone. She'd probably raced the last patient to the stairway, winning handily, and now, for a moment or so, one foot on a chair, I just sip my drink, looking down at the street and pretending, as the gentle rapping began again, that I wasn't going to answer it. It wasn't dark yet. It wouldn't be for some time. But it wasn't full daylight anymore, either. The street lights had come on, and Throckmorton Street below was empty. At six around here, nearly everyone is eating. And I felt lonely and depressed. Then the rapping sounded again, and I set my drink down, walked out, unlocked the door, and opened it. I guess I blinked a couple of times, my mouth open foolishly, because Becky Driscoll was standing there. Hello, Miles, she smiled, pleased at the surprise and pleasure in my face. Becky, I murmured, stepping aside to let her in. It's good to see you. Come on in. I grinned suddenly, and Becky walked in past me and on through the reception room toward my office. What is this? I said, closing the door. A professional call? 
I was so relieved and pleased that I got excited and exuberant. We have a special on appendectomies this week, I called happily. Better stock up, and she turned to smile. Her figure, I saw, following along after her, was still marvelous. Becky has a fine, beautifully fleshed skeleton, too wide in the hips, I've heard women say, but I never heard a man say it. No, Becky stopped at my desk and turned to answer my question. This isn't a professional call, exactly. I picked up my glass, raising it to the light. I drink all day, as everyone knows, on operating days especially, and every patient has to have one with me. How about it? The glass nearly slipped through my fingers because Becky sobbed. A dry, down-in-the-throat gasp, her breath sucking in convulsively, her eyes brimmed with sudden bright tears, and she turned quickly away, shoulders hunching, hands rising toward her face. I could use one. She could hardly speak. After a second, I said, Sit down, speaking very gently, and Becky dropped into the leather chair before my desk. I went to the washroom, mixed her a drink, taking my time about it, came back and set it on the glass-top desk before her. Then I walked around the desk and sat down facing her, leaning back in my swivel chair, and when Becky glanced up, I just nodded at her glass, gently urging her to drink, and I took a swallow from mine, smiling at her over the rim, giving her a few moments to get hold of herself. For the first time I really saw her face again. I saw it was the same nice face, the bones prominent and well-shaped under the skin, the same kind and intelligent eyes, the rims a little red just now the same full, good-looking mouth. Her hair was different. It was shorter or something, but it was the same rich brown, almost black, thick and wiry, and looking naturally wavy, though I remembered it wasn't. She'd changed, of course. She wasn't eighteen now, but well into her twenties, and looked it, no more and no less. But she was also still the same woman, girl, I'd known in high school. I'd taken her out a few times in my senior year. It's good to see you again, Becky, I said, saluting her with my glass and smiling. Then I took a sip, lowering my eyes. I wanted to get her talking on something else before she got down to whatever the trouble was. Good to see you, Miles. Becky took a deep breath and sat back in her chair, glass in hand. She knew what I was doing and went along with it. Remember when you called for me once? We were going to a party somewhere, and you had that writing on your forehead. I remembered, but raised my brows questioningly. You had M.B. Loves B.D. printed on your forehead in red ink or lipstick or something. Said you were going to wear it all evening. I had to get tough before you'd wipe it off. I grinned. Yeah, I remember. Then I remembered something else. Becky, I heard about your divorce, of course, and I'm sorry. She nodded. Thanks, Miles. And I've heard about yours. I'm sorry, too. I shrugged. Guess we're Lodge brothers now. Yes, 
She got down to business. Miles, I've come about Wilma. Wilma was her cousin. What's the trouble? I don't know. Becky stared at her glass for a moment, then looked up at me again. She has a... She hesitated. People hate to give names to these things. Well, I guess you'd call it a delusion. You know her uncle, Uncle Ira? Yeah. Miles, she's got herself thinking that he isn't her uncle. How do you mean? I took a sip from my glass. That they aren't really related? No, uh, no. She shook her head impatiently. I mean, she thinks he's... One shoulder lifted in a puzzled shrug. An imposter or something? Someone who only looks like Ira. I stared at Becky. I wasn't getting this. Wilma was raised by her aunt and uncle. Well, can't she tell? No. She says he looks exactly like Uncle Ira, talks just like him, acts just like him, everything. She just knows it isn't Ira, that's all. Miles, I'm worried sick. The tears sprang to her eyes again. Work on that drink, I murmured, nodding at her glass, and I took a big swallow of mine and sat back in my chair, staring at the ceiling, thinking about this. Wilma had her problems, but she was tough-minded and bright, about thirty-five years old. She was red-cheeked, short and plump, with no looks at all. She never married, which is too bad. I'm certain she'd have liked to, and I think she'd have made a fine wife and mother. But that's how it goes. She ran the local rental library and greeting card shop and did a good job of it. She made a living out of it anyway, which isn't so easy in a small town. Wilma hadn't turned sour or bitter. She had a shrewd, humorously cynical turn of mind. She knew what was what and didn't fool herself. I couldn't see Wilma letting mental troubles get to her, but still, you never know. I looked back at Becky. What do you want me to do? Come out there tonight, Miles. She leaned forward across the desk, pleading, Right now, if you possibly can, before it gets dark. I want you to look at Uncle Ira. Talk to him. You've known him for years. I had my glass raised halfway to my mouth, but I set it back down on the desk, staring at Becky. What do you mean? What are you talking about, Becky? Don't you think he's Ira? She flushed. Of course, of course I do. Suddenly she was biting her lips, shaking her head helplessly from side to side. Oh, I don't know, Miles. I don't know. Certainly he's Uncle Ira. Of course he is, but... It's just that Wilma's so positive. She actually wrung her hands, a thing you read about but rarely see. Miles, I don't know what's going on out there. I stood up and came around the desk to stand beside her chair. Well, let's go see, I said gently. Take it easy, Becky. And I put a hand on her shoulder comfortingly. Her shoulder under the thin dress felt firm and round and warm. And I took my hand off. Whatever's happening, there's a cause, and we'll find it and fix it. Come on. 
I turned, opened the wall closet beside my desk to get my jacket, and felt like a fool, because my jacket was hanging where I always keep it, around Fred's shoulders. Fred is a nicely polished, completely articulated skeleton, and I keep it in my closet together with a smaller female skeleton. Can't have them standing around the office frightening the customers. My father gave them to me one Christmas, my first semester in medical school. They're a fine, useful thing for a medical student to have, of course, but I think my father's real reason for giving them to me was because he could, and did, present them in a huge, six-foot-long, tissue-wrapped box tied with red and green ribbon. Where he got a box that big, I don't know. Now Fred and his companion are in my office closet, and of course I always hang my jacket on his polished, bony shoulders. My nurse thinks it's a riot, and it got a little smile now from Becky. I shrug, grab my coat, and close the door. Sometimes I think I clown around too much. Pretty soon people won't trust me to prescribe aspirin for a head cold. I dialed telephone answering, told them where I was going, and we left the office to go take a look at Uncle Ira. Just to get the record straight, my full name is Miles Boys Bennell. I'm 28 years old, and I've been practicing medicine in Mill Valley, California, for just over a year. Before that, I interned, and before that, Stanford Medical College. I was born and raised in Mill Valley, and my father was a doctor here before me, and a good one, so I haven't had too much trouble snaring customers. I'm 5 feet 11 inches tall, weigh 165, have blue eyes and black kind of wavy hair, pretty thick, though already there's the faintest beginning of a bald spot on the crown. It runs in the family. I don't worry about it, nothing you can do about it anyway, though you'd think the doctors would find something. I play tennis whenever I can, so I'm always pretty tanned. Five months earlier, I'd been divorced. And now I lived alone in a big old-fashioned frame house with plenty of big trees and lots of lawn space around it. It was my parents' house before they died, and now it's mine. That's about all. I drive a 1973 Mercedes two-seater, a nice fire-engine red job, bought used to maintain the popular illusion that all doctors are rich. We drove over to Strawberry, an unincorporated suburban area just outside the city limits, and then over to Ricardo Road. It's a wide, winding street, and we found Uncle Ira out on the lawn in front of his house. He looked up as we slowed at the curb and grinned. Evening, Becky. Hi, Miles, he called. We answered, waving, and got out of the car. Becky went on up the walk to the house, speaking pleasantly to Uncle Ira as she passed. I strolled across the lawn toward him, casually, hands in pockets, just passing the time of day. Evening, Mr. Lentz. How's business, Miles? Kill many today? He grinned as though this were a brand new joke. Bag the limit, I smiled, stopping beside him. This was the usual routine between us, whenever we ran into each other around town. And now I stood looking him in the eyes, his face not two feet from mine. It was nice out, temperature around 65, and the light was still good enough to see perfectly well. I don't know just what I thought I might see, but of course it was Uncle Ira. 
The same Mr. Lentz I'd known as a kid delivering an evening paper to the bank every night. He was head teller then. He's retired now. and was always urging me to bank my huge profits from the newspaper route. Now he looked just about the same, except that it was fifteen years later and his hair was white. He's big, well over six feet, a little shambling in his gait now, but still a vigorous, shrewd-eyed, nice old man. And this was him, no one else, standing there on the lawn in the early evening. And I began to feel scared about Wilma. We chatted about nothing much, local politics, the weather, business. And I studied every line and pore of his face, listened to each tone and inflection of his voice, alert to every move and gesture. You can't really do two things at once, though, and he noticed. You worried or something, Miles? Seem a little absent-minded tonight. I smiled and shrugged. Just taking my work home with me, I guess. Mustn't do that, boy. I never did. Forgot all about the bank the minute I put my hat on at night. Of course, you don't get to be president that way, he grinned. But the president's dead now, and I'm still alive. Hell, it was Uncle Ira. Every hair, every line of his face, every word, movement, and thought. And I felt like a fool. Becky and Wilma came out of the house and sat down on the porch glider, and I waved to them then walked on up to the house. Chapter Two Wilma sat waiting on the glider with Becky, smiling pleasantly till I reached the porch. Then she said quietly, I'm glad you've come, Miles. Hello, Wilma. Nice to see you. I sat down on the wide porch rail facing them, my back against the pillar. Wilma watched me questioningly, then glanced out at her uncle, who'd begun puttering around the lawn again. Well, she said. I glanced at Ira, too, and looked at Wilma. I nodded. It's him, Wilma. It's your uncle, all right. She just nodded, as though expecting exactly that answer. It's not she murmured, but she said it quietly, not arguing, just asserting a fact. Well, I said, leaning my head back against the pillar, let's take this a little at a time. After all, you could hardly be fooled. You've lived with him for years. How do you know he isn't Uncle Ira Wilma? How is he different? For a moment her voice shot up, high and panicky. That's just it. But she quieted down instantly, leaning toward me. Miles, there is no difference you can actually see. I'd hope you might find one when Becky told me you were here, that you'd see some sort of difference. But of course you can't, because there isn't any to see. Look at him. We all glanced out at the lawn again. Uncle Ira was idly kicking with the side of his foot at a weed or pebble or something embedded in the lawn. Every little move, everything about him is exactly like Ira's. 
her face still red-cheeked and round as a circle, but lined now with anxiety. Wilma sat staring at me, eyes intense. I've been waiting for today, she whispered, waiting till he'd get a haircut, and he finally did. Again she leaned toward me, eyes big, her voice a hissing whisper. There's a little scar on the back of Ira's neck. He had a boil there once, and your father lanced it. You can't see the scar, she whispered, when he needs a haircut. But when his neck is shaved, you can. Well, today, I've been waiting for this. Today he got a haircut. I sat forward, suddenly excited. And the scar's gone, you mean? No! She said almost indignantly, eyes flashing. It's there, the scar, exactly like Uncle Iris. I didn't answer for a moment, staring down at the tip of my shoe. I didn't dare glance at Becky, and for a moment I couldn't look at poor Wilma. Then I raised my head, looking her squarely in the eyes, and said it. Then look, Wilma, he is Uncle Ira. Can't you see that? No matter how you feel, he is. She just shook her head and sat back on the swing. He's not. For a moment I was stuck, rattled. I couldn't think of anything else to say. Where's your Aunt Alida? It's all right, she's upstairs. Just be sure he doesn't hear. I sat chewing my lip, trying to think. What about his habits, Wilma? I said then, little mannerisms. All the same as Uncle Ira's, exactly. Of course I shouldn't have, but for an instant I lost my patience. Well, what is the difference then? If there isn't any, how can you tell? I quieted right down and tried to be constructive. Wilma, what about memories? There must be little things only you and Uncle Ira would know. Pushing her feet against the floor, she began gently moving the glider, gazing out at Uncle Ira, who was staring up at a tree now, as though wondering if it didn't need pruning. I've tested that too, she said quietly. Talked to him about when I was a child. She sighed, trying uselessly and knowing it was useless to make me understand. Once, years ago, he took me with him into a hardware store. There was a miniature door set in a little frame standing on the counter, an advertisement for some kind of lock, I think. It had little hinges, a little doorknob, even a tiny brass knocker. Well, I wanted it, of course, and raised a fuss when I couldn't have it. He remembers that, all about it. What I said, what the clerk said, what he said, even the name of the store, and it's been gone for years. He even remembers things I'd forgotten completely. A cloud we saw late one Saturday afternoon when he called for me at the movie after the matinee. It was shaped like a rabbit. Oh, he remembers all right, everything, just as Uncle Ira would have. I'm a general practitioner, not a psychiatrist, and I was out of my depth and knew it. For a few moments I just sat staring down at the interlaced fingers in the backs of my hands, listening to the quiet creak of the glider. Then I made 
one more try, talking quietly and as persuasively as I could, remembering not to talk down to Wilma and that whatever might have happened to it, her brain was a good one. Look, Wilma, I'm on your side. My business is people in trouble. This is trouble and needs fixing, and you know that as well as I do. And I'm going to find a way to help you. Now listen to me. I don't expect you or ask you to suddenly agree that this has all been a mistake, that it's really Uncle Ira after all, and you don't know what could have happened to you. I mean, I don't expect you to stop feeling emotionally that this isn't your uncle. But I do want you to realize he's your uncle, no matter what you feel, and that the trouble is inside you. It's absolutely impossible for two people to look exactly alike, no matter what you've read in stories or seen in the movies. Even identical twins can always be told apart, always, by their intimates. No one could possibly impersonate your Uncle Ira for more than a moment without you, Becky, or even me, seeing a million differences. Realize that, Wilma. Think about it and get it into your head, and you'll know the trouble is inside you. And then we'll be able to do something about it. I sat back against the porch column. I'd shot my wad and waited for an answer. Still swinging gently, her foot pushing rhythmically against the floor, Wilma sat thinking about what I'd just said. Then, eyes staring absently off across the porch, she pursed her lips and slowly shook her head. No. Listen, Wilma. I spat the words out, leaning far forward, holding her eyes. Your Aunt Alida would know. Can't you see that? She couldn't be fooled of all people. What does she say? Have you talked with her, told her about this? Wilma just shook her head again, turning to stare across the porch at nothing. Why not? She turned slowly back toward me. For a moment her eyes stared into mine. Then suddenly the tears were running down her plump, twisted face. Because, Miles... She's not my Aunt Alida, either. For an instant, mouth open, she stared at me in absolute horror. Then, if you can scream in a whisper, that's what she did. Oh my God, Miles, am I going crazy? Tell me, Miles, tell me, don't spare me, I've got to know. Becky was holding Wilma's hand, squeezing it between her own, her face contorted in an agony of compassion. I deliberately smiled into Wilma's eyes, exactly as though I knew what I was talking about. No, I said firmly, you're not. I grinned and reached forward to lay my hand over hers, clenched on the arm of the glider. Even these days, Wilma, it isn't as easy to go crazy as you might think. Making her voice almost calm, Becky said, I've always heard that if you think you're losing your mind, you're not. There's a lot of truth in that, I said, though there isn't. But Wilma, you don't have to be losing your mind by a long shot to need psychiatric help. So what? 
Nowadays, that's nothing, and plenty of people have been helped. You don't understand. She sat staring at Uncle Ira, her voice dull and withdrawn now. Then, giving Becky's hand a squeeze and thanks, she withdrew her own hand and turned to me, no longer crying, and her voice was quiet and firm. Miles, he looks, sounds, acts, and remembers exactly like Ira, on the outside. But inside, he's different. His responses... She stopped, hunting for the word. Aren't emotionally right if I can explain that. He remembers the past in detail, and he'll smile and say, You're sure a cute youngster, Willie, bright one too, just the way Uncle Ira did, but there's something missing. And the same thing is true of Aunt Alida lately. Wilma stopped, staring at nothing again, face intent, wrapped up in this. Then she continued, Uncle Ira was a father to me, from infancy, and when he talked about my childhood, Miles, there was always a special look in his eyes that meant he was remembering the wonderful quality of those days for him. Miles, that look, way in the back of the eyes, is gone. With this, this Uncle Iroh, whoever or whatever he is, I have the feeling, the absolutely certain knowledge, Miles, that he's talking by rote that the facts of Uncle Ira's memory are all in his mind, in every last detail, ready to recall, but the emotions are not. There is no emotion, none, only the pretense of it. The words, the gesture, the tones of voice, everything else, but not the feeling. Her voice was suddenly firm and commanding. Miles. Memories are not, appearances are not, possible or impossible. That is not my Uncle Ira. There was nothing more to say now. And Wilma knew that as well as I did. She stood up smiling and said, We better break this up, or... She nodded toward the lawn. He'll begin wondering. I was still confused. Wondering what? Wondering she said patiently, if I don't suspect. Then she held out her hand, and I took it. You've helped me, Miles, whether you know it or not, and I don't want you to worry too much about me. She turned to Becky, or you either. She grinned. I'm tough, you both know that, and I'll be all right. And if you want me to see your psychiatrist, Miles, I will. I nodded, said I'd make an appointment for her with Dr. Manfred Kaufman in San Rafael, the best man I know of, and that I'd phone her in the morning. I muttered some nonsense about relaxing, taking it easy, not worrying, and so on, and Wilma smiled gently and put her hand on my arm, the way a woman does when she forgives a man for failing her. Then she thanked Becky for coming over, said she wanted to get to bed early, and I told Becky I'd drive her home. Going down the walk toward the car, we passed Uncle Ira, and I said, Night, Mr. Lentz. Night, Miles. Come again. He grinned at Becky, but still speaking to me, said, Nice having Becky back again, isn't it? And all but winked. 
Sure is, I smiled, and Becky murmured good night. In the car, I asked Becky if she'd like to do something, have dinner somewhere, maybe, but I wasn't surprised when she wanted to get home. She lived about three blocks from my house in a big, white, old-fashioned frame house that her father had been born in. When we stopped at the curb, Becky said, Miles, what do you think? Will she be all right? I hesitated, then shrugged. I don't know. I'm a doctor, according to my diploma, but I don't really know what Wilma's trouble is. I could start talking psychiatrical jargon, but the truth is that it's out of my line. And in many Kaufman's. Well, do you think he can help her? Sometimes there's a limit to how truthful you should be. And I said, yes, if anyone can help her, Manny's the boy to do it. I think he can help her. But I didn't really know. At Becky's door, without any advanced planning or even thinking about it beforehand, I said, tomorrow night? And Becky nodded absently, still thinking about Wilma, and said, yes, around eight. And I said, fine, I'll call for you. You'd think we'd been seeing each other for months. We simply picked right up where we'd left off years earlier. And walking back to my car, it occurred to me that I was more relaxed and at peace with the world than I'd been in a long, long time. Maybe that sounds heartless. Maybe you think I should have been worrying about Wilma. And in a way, I was far back in my mind. But a doctor learns because he has to, not to worry actively about patients until the worrying can do some good. Meanwhile, they have to be walled off in a quiet compartment of the mind. They don't teach that at medical school, but it's as important as your stethoscope. You've even got to be able to lose a patient and go back to your office and treat a cinder in the eye with absolute attention. And if you can't do it, you give up medicine or specialize. I had dinner at Dave's Diner, sitting at a small side table, and noticed the restaurant wasn't at all crowded, and wondered why. Then I went on home, got into pajama pants, and lay in bed reading a paperback mystery, hoping the phone wouldn't ring. Chapter 3 Next morning, when I got to my office, a patient was waiting, a quiet little woman in her forties who sat in a leather chair in front of my desk, hands folded in her lap over her purse, and told me she was perfectly sure her husband wasn't her husband at all. Her voice calm. She said he looked, talked, and acted exactly the way her husband always had, and they'd been married eighteen years but that it simply wasn't him. It was Wilma's story all over again, except for the actual details. And when she left, I phoned Manny Kaufman and made two appointments. I'll cut this short. By Tuesday of the following week, the night of the Marin General Hospital staff meeting, I'd sent five more patients to Manny. One was a bright, level-headed young lawyer I knew fairly well, who was convinced that the married sister he lived with wasn't really a sister, though the woman's own husband obviously still thought so. 
There were the mothers of three high school girls who arrived at my office in a body to tell me tearfully that the girls were being laughed at because they insisted their English teacher was actually an imposter who resembled the real teacher exactly. A nine-year-old boy came in with his grandmother, with whom he was now living, because he became hysterical at the sight of his mother, who, he said, wasn't his mother at all. Manny Kaufman was waiting for me when I arrived a little early for a change at the staff meeting. I parked in the hospital lot, and as I set the brake, somebody called to me from a parked car down the line. I got out, and walking toward it, saw that it was Manny and Doc Carmichael, another marine psychiatrist, in the front seat. Ed Percy, one of my Mill Valley competitors, was in the back seat. Manny had the door on his side open and was sitting sideways, his feet out of the car, heels hooked on the bottom ledge. Elbows on his knees, he was leaning forward, hands clasped. He's a dark, nervous, good-looking man. Looks like an intelligent football player. Carmichael and Percy are older and look more like doctors. What the hell's going on in Mill Valley? Manny said as I walked up. He glanced at Ed Percy in the back seat to show he was included in the question, so I knew Ed must have been having some cases, too. It's a new hobby over our way, I said, leaning an arm on the open door. A cinch to replace jogging. Well, it's the first contagious neurosis I ever ran into, Manny said. He was half laughing, half mad. But by God, you've got a real epidemic. And if it keeps up, you'll kill our racket. We don't know what to do with these people, right, Charlie? Glanced over his shoulder at Carmichael at the wheel of the car, who frowned a little. Carmichael upholds the dignity of local psychiatry, while Manny has the brains. Most unusual series of cases, Carmichael said judiciously. Well, I shrugged. Psychiatry is in its infancy, of course, the backward stepchild of medicine, and naturally you two can't... No fooling, Miles. These cases have got me stopped. Manny looked up at me speculatively, one eye narrowed. You know what I'd say about any one of these cases if it weren't absolutely impossible? The Lentz woman, for example. I'd say there was no delusion at all. From every indication I know anything about, I'd say she's not particularly neurotic, at least not in that respect. I'd say she doesn't belong in my office, that her worry is external and real. I'd say, just judging from the patient, of course, that she's right and that her uncle actually is not her uncle, except that that's impossible. Manny looked at me curiously and added, but it's equally impossible for a total of nine people in Mill Valley to suddenly and simultaneously acquire a virtually identical delusion. Right, Charlie? That's exactly what seems to have happened. Charlie Carmichael didn't answer. And no one else said anything for a moment. Then Ed Percy sighed and said, I had another this afternoon. Man about fifty. Been a patient of mine for years, has a daughter, 25. Now she isn't his daughter, he says. Same kind of case. He shrugged and spoke to the front seat. Shall I send him over to one of you guys? Neither of them answered for a moment. 
Then Manny said, I don't know. Do what you want. I know I can't help him if he's like the others. Maybe Charlie doesn't feel so hopeless. Carmichael said, you might send him over. I'll do what I can. But Manny is right. These are certainly not typical cases of delusion. Or anything else, said Manny. Maybe we should try a little bloodletting, I said. By God, you might as well, said Manny. It was time to go in, and they got out of the car, and we all walked into the hospital. The meeting was as fascinating as usual. We heard a speaker, a university professor, who was rambling and dull, and I wished I were with Becky, or at home, or even watching TV. After the meeting, Manny and I talked a little more, standing in the dark beside my car, but there really wasn't anything more to say. Finally, Manny said, Well, keep in touch, will you, Miles? We gotta work this out. I said I would, got into my car and drove on home. I'd seen Becky at least every other night all the past week, but not because there was anything building up between us. It was just better than hanging around the pool hall, playing solitaire or collecting stamps. She was a pleasant, comfortable way of spending some evenings, nothing more, and that suited me fine. Wednesday night, when I called for her, we decided on the movies. I called telephone answering, told Maud Kreitz, who was on that night, that I was heading for the Sequoia Theater over in Corte Madera, that I was switching my practice entirely to abortions, invited her around as my first patient, and she giggled happily. Then we went on out to the car. You look great, I said to Becky as we walked toward my car parked at the curb. She did, too. She had on a gray suit with a sort of spray of flowers worked into the material in silver and running up onto one shoulder. Thanks. Becky got into the car, then grinned at me sort of lazily and happily. I feel good when I'm with you, Miles, she said. More at ease than with anyone else. I think it's because we've each been divorced. I nodded and started the car. I knew what she meant. It was wonderful to be free, but just the same, the breakup of something that wasn't intended to turn out that way leaves you a little shaken and not too sure of yourself, and I knew I was lucky to have run into Becky, because we'd each been through the same mill, and it meant I had a woman to go out with on a nice even keel, with none of the unspoken pressures and demands that gradually accumulate between a man and a woman ordinarily. With anyone else, I knew we'd have been building toward some sort of inevitable climax, marriage, or an affair, or a bust-up, but Becky was just what the doctor ordered. And driving along now through the cool fall evening, I felt fine. We parked in the big lot, and at the box office, as I bought our tickets, the girl said, Thanks, Doc. Just check in with Jerry meaning she'd relay any calls that came in for me if I'd tell the manager where we were sitting. We bought popcorn in the lobby, walked in, and sat down. We were lucky. We saw half the picture. Sometimes I think I've seen half of more movies than anyone else alive, and my mind is cluttered with vague, never-to-be-answered wonderings about how certain movies turned out and how others began. 
Jerry Montizembear, the manager, was leaning into our aisle, beckoning to me, and I muttered a blasphemy to Becky. It was a good picture called Time and Again, about a guy who finds a way to visit the past. Then we pushed our way out past fifty people, each of them equipped with three knees. As we came out into the lobby, Jack Belichick stepped forward from the popcorn stand and came toward us, smiling apologetically. Sorry, Miles, he said, glancing at Becky to include her in the apology. Hate to spoil your movie. That's okay. What's the trouble, Jack? He didn't answer. But walked forward to hold the outer doors open for us, and I knew he didn't want to talk in the lobby, so we walked out onto the sidewalk, and he followed. But outside, as we stopped just past the overhead lights from the marquee, he still wouldn't get to the point. No one's sick, Miles. It isn't that. Don't know if you could even call it an emergency exactly, but I'd certainly like you to come out tonight. I like Jack. He's a writer and a good one, I think. I've read one of his books. But I was a little annoyed. This kind of thing happens so often. All day, people will wait around, thinking about calling the doctor, but deciding not to, deciding to wait, hoping it won't be necessary. But then it gets dark, and there's something about night that makes them decide that maybe they'd better have the doctor after all. Well, Jack, I said, if it's anything that can wait till morning, then why not do that? I nodded toward Becky. It's not just my evening, but... Uh, you two know each other, by the way. Becky smiled and said, yes, and Jack said, sure, I know Becky, her dad, too. He frowned and stood there on the walk, thinking for a moment. Then he glanced from me to Becky, including us both in what he was saying. Look, bring Becky along, if she'd like to come. Might be a good idea, might help my wife. He smiled wryly. I don't say she'll like what she'll see, but it'll be a lot more interesting than any movie, I promise you that. I glanced at Becky, she nodded, and since Jack is no fool, I didn't ask any more questions. All right, I said, let's go in my car so we can talk. I'll drive you back to pick up yours when we're through. We sat three in the front seat, and on the way, Jack lives in what is still almost country just outside Mill Valley. He didn't offer any more information, and I assumed he had a reason. Jack's a thin-faced, intense sort of man with prematurely white hair. He's about forty years old, I'd say, an intelligent man of good sense and judgment. I knew that because some months ago his wife was sick and he called me in. She had a sudden high fever, extreme lassitude, and I had diagnosed it finally as Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. I wasn't happy about that. You could practice medicine in California for a long time and never run across Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, and it was hard to see how she could have caught it. But I didn't see what else it could be, and that's what I advised treatment for, starting at once. I had to tell Jack, though, that I'd never seen a case before, and that if he wanted other opinions, he must feel free to get them. But I added that I was as sure of my diagnosis as I thought anyone else around could be of his, and that a conflicting opinion... Just then, uncertainness on anyone's part wouldn't be so good. Jack listened, asked some questions, thought about it, then told me to go ahead and treat his wife, which I did. A month later, she was well and baking cookies. Jack brought me a batch at the office, so I respected him. He knew how to make a decision, 
and I waited now till he was ready to talk. We passed the black-and-white city limits sign, and Jack pointed ahead. Turn left on the dirt road, if you remember, Miles. It's the greenhouse on the hill. I nodded and swung onto the road, shifting for the climb. He said, Stop a minute, will you, Miles? I want to ask you something. I pulled to the edge of the road, set the brake, and turned to him, leaving the engine running. He took a deep breath and said, Miles, there are certain things a doctor has to report when he runs into them, aren't there? It was as much a statement as a question, and I just nodded. A contagious disease, for example, he went on as though thinking out loud. Or a gunshot wound, or a dead body. Well, Miles, he turned to stare out the window on his side. Do you always have to report them? Is there ever a case, I mean, when a doctor might feel justified in overlooking the rules? I shrugged. Depends, I said. I didn't know how to answer him. On what? On the doctor, I suppose, and the particular case. What's up, Jack? I can't tell you yet. I've got to know the answer to this first. Staring out his window, he thought for a moment, then turned to look at me. Maybe you can answer this. Can you imagine a case, any kind of case, a gunshot wound, for example, where the rules or the law or whatever it was required you to report it, and where you'd get into real trouble if you didn't report it and were found out, maybe even lose your license? Can you imagine any set of circumstances where you might gamble your reputation, ethics, and license and not turn in a report just the same? I shrugged again. I don't know, Jack. I guess so. I guess I could dream up some sort of situation where I'd forget the rules if it were important enough. And I felt I ought to. I was suddenly irritated at all the mystery. I don't know, Jack. What are you getting at? This is all too vague, and I don't want you getting the idea that I'm promising a thing. If you got something up at your house that I ought to report, I'll probably report it. That's all I can tell you. Jack smiled. All right, that's good enough. I think maybe you'll decide not to report this one. He nodded toward his house. Let's go on up. I pulled out into the road again, and the headlights caught a figure maybe a hundred yards ahead, walking toward us. It was a woman, still wearing an apron, arms huddled across her chest, hands cupping her elbows. It gets cool here in the evenings. Then I saw it was Theodora, Jack's wife. I pulled toward her slowly, then stopped beside her. She said, Hello, Miles, and spoke to Jack, looking into the car through my open window. I couldn't stay up there alone, Jack. I just couldn't. I'm sorry. He nodded. I should have brought you along. It was stupid of me not to. Opening the car door, I leaned forward to let Theodora into the back seat. Then Jack introduced her to Becky, and we drove on up to the house. Chapter 4 Jack's is a green frame house sitting by itself on the side of a hill and the garage is part of the basement. The garage was empty, the door open, and Jack motioned me to drive right in. 
We got out of the car then. Jack snapped on a light, closed the garage door, then opened a door leading into the basement proper, motioning us to walk on in ahead of him. We stepped into an ordinary basement, an old-style laundry tub, a washing machine, a wooden sawhorse, stacked newspapers, and against one wall on the floor some cardboard cartons and several used paint cans. Jack walked past us across the room to another door, then stopped, turned toward us, his hand on the doorknob. He had a pretty good second-hand billiard table in there, I knew. He told me he used it a lot, just knocking the balls around by himself, doing a lot of his writing in his head. Now he looked at Becky, glancing at his wife, too. Get hold of yourself, he said, then walked in, pulled the chain on the overhead light, and we followed after him. The light over a billiard table is designed to light up the table surface brilliantly. It hangs low so it won't shine in your eyes as you play, and it leaves the ceiling in darkness. This one had a rectangular shade to confine the light to the tabletop only, and the rest of the room was left in semi-gloom. I couldn't see Becky's face very clearly, but I heard her gasp. Lying on the bright green tabletop under the sharp light of the 150-watt bulb and covered with the rubberized sheet Jack kept on the billiard table lay what was unmistakably a body. I turned to look at Jack, and he said, Go ahead, pull it off. I was irritated. This worried and scared me, and there was damn too much mystery to suit me. It occurred to me that the writer in Jack was laying on the dramatics a little heavily. I grabbed the rubber sheet, yanked it off, and tossed it to a corner of the table. Lying on the green felt, on its back, was the naked body of a man. It was maybe five feet ten inches tall. It isn't too easy to judge heights looking down on a body that way. He was white the skin very pale in the brilliant shadowless light, and at one and the same time it looked unreal and theatrical, and yet it was intensely overly real. The body was slim, maybe a 140 pounds, but well-nourished and well-muscled. I couldn't judge the age, except that he wasn't old. The eyes were open, staring directly up into the overhead light in a way that made your own eyes smart. They were blue and very clear. There was no wound visible and no other obvious cause of death. I walked over beside Becky, slipped my arm under hers, and turned to Jack. Well? He shook his head, refusing to comment. Keep looking. Examine it. Notice anything strange? I turned back to the body on the table. I was getting more and more irritated. I didn't like this. There was something strange about this dead man on the table, but I couldn't tell what. And that only made me angrier. Come on, Jack. I looked at him again. I don't see anything but a dead man. Let's cut out the mystery. What's it all about? Again, he shook his head frowning pleadingly. Miles, 
Take it easy, please. I don't want to tell you my impression of what's wrong. I don't want to influence you. If it's there to see, I want you to find it yourself first. And if it isn't, if I'm imagining things, I want to know that too. Bear with me, Miles, he said gently. Take a good look at that thing. I studied the corpse, walking slowly around the table, stopping to look down at it from various angles. Jack, Becky, and Theodora stepping aside out of my way as I moved. All right, I said presently and reluctantly, apologizing to Jack with the tone of my voice. There is something funny about it. You're not imagining things. Or if you are, so am I. For maybe half a minute longer, I stood staring down at what lay on the table. Well, for one thing, I said finally, you don't often see a body like this, dead or alive. In a way, it reminds me of a few tubercular patients I've seen, those who've been in sanitariums nearly all their lives. I looked around at them all. You can't live an ordinary life without picking up a few scars, a few nicks here and there, but these sanitarium patients never had a chance to get any. Their bodies were unused, and that's how this one looks. I nodded at the pale, motionless body under the light. It's not tubercular, though. It's a well-built, healthy body. Those are good muscles, but it never played football or hockey. Never fell on a cement stair, never broke a bone. It looks unused. That what you mean? Jack nodded. Yeah, what else? Becky, you all right? I glanced across the table at her. Yes, she nodded, biting at her lower lip. The face... I said, answering Jack. I stood looking down at that face, waxy white, absolutely still and motionless, the china-clear eyes staring. It's not immature, exactly. I wasn't sure how to say this. Those are good bones. It's an adult face, but it looks... I hunted for the word and couldn't find it. Vague? It looks... Jack interrupted, his voice tense and eager. He was actually smiling a little. Did you ever see them make medals? Medals? Yeah, fine medals. Medallions. No. Well, for a really fine job in hard metal, Jack said, settling into his explanation, they make two impressions. I didn't know what he was talking about or why. First, they take a die and make impression number one, giving the blank metal its first rough shape. Then they stamp it with die number two, and it's the second die that gives it the details, the fine lines and delicate modeling you see in a really good medallion. They have to do it that way because that second die, the one with the details, couldn't force its way into the smooth metal. You have to give it that first rough shape with die number one. He stopped looking from me to Becky to see if we were following him. So, I said a little impatiently, well, usually a medallion shows a face. And when you look at it after die number one, the face isn't finished. It's all there, all right, but the details that give it character aren't. He stared at me. Miles, that's what this face looks like. 
It's all there. It has lips, a nose, eyes, skin, and bone structure underneath, but there are no lines, no details, no character. It's unformed. Look at it. His voice rose a notch. It's like a blank face, waiting for the final finished face to be stamped onto it. He was right. I'd never seen a face like that before in my life. It wasn't flabby. You certainly couldn't say that. But somehow it was formless, characterless. It really wasn't a face, not yet. There was no life to it. It wasn't marked by experience. That's the only way I can explain it. Who is he? I said. I don't know. Jack walked to the doorway and nodded out at the basement and the staircase leading upstairs. There's a little closet under the stairway. It's walled in with plywood to make a little storage space. It's half full of old junk, clothes and cardboard boxes, burned-out electrical appliances, an old vacuum cleaner and iron, some lamps, stuff like that. We hardly ever open it. And there are some old books in there, too. I found them in there. I was hunting for a reference I needed and thought it might be in one of those books. He was lying there, on top of the cartons, just the way you see him now. Scared me stiff. I backed out like a cat in a doghouse. Got a hell of a bump on the head. He touched his scalp. Then I went back and pulled him out. I thought he might still be alive. I, I couldn't tell. Miles, how soon does rigor mortis set in? Oh, eight to ten hours. Feel him, said Jack. In a way, he was enjoying himself, as a man will who's made a big promise and is living up to it. I picked up an arm from the table by the wrist. It was loose and flexible. It didn't even feel clammy or particularly cold. No rigor mortis, Jack said, right? That's right, I said. But rigor mortis isn't invariable. There are certain conditions. I stopped talking. I didn't know what to make of this. If you want, said Jack, you can turn him over, but you won't find any wounds in the back, and there are none in the hair, not a sign of what killed him. I hesitated, but legally I couldn't touch this body, and I picked up the rubber sheet and tossed it over the body again, half covering it. All right, I said. Where to now? Upstairs? Yeah. Jack nodded at the doorway and stood with his hand on the light chain till we all filed out. Up in the living room, Theodora politely asked us to sit down, went around turning on lamps, then went into the kitchen and came back in a moment without her apron. She sat down in a big easy chair. Becky and I were on the Chesterfield, and Jack was sitting by the window in a wooden rocking chair looking down on the town. Almost the whole front wall of his living room is a single sheet of plate glass, and you could see the lights of the entire town scattered through the hills. It's a nice room. Want a drink or anything, Jack said then. Becky shook her head, and I said, no thanks, you folks go ahead, though. Jack said no, glancing at his wife, and she shook her head. Then he said, we called you Miles because you're a doctor, but also because you're a guy who can face facts, even when the facts aren't what they ought to be. You're not a man to knock yourself out trying to talk black into white just because it's more comfortable. Things are what they are with you, as we have reason to know. I shrugged and didn't say anything. 
You got anything more to say about this body downstairs? Jack asked. I sat there for a moment or so, fiddling with a button on my coat, then made up my mind to say it. Yeah, I said, I have. This doesn't make sense. It makes no sense at all. But I'd give a lot to perform an autopsy on that body, because you know what I think I'd find? I glanced round the room. At Jack, Theodora, then Becky, and no one answered. They just sat there waiting. I think I'd find no cause of death at all. I think I'd find every organ in as perfect condition as the body is externally, everything in perfect working order, ready to go. I let them think about that for a moment, then gave them some more. I felt utterly foolish saying it, and utterly certain I was right. That isn't all. I think that when I opened the stomach... There'd be nothing inside, not a crumb, not a particle of food, digested or undigested, nothing. Empty as a newborn baby's. And if I opened the bowel, the same thing, no waste, not a bit, nothing at all. Why? I glanced around at them again. Because I don't believe that that body downstairs ever died. There's no cause of death, because it never died. And it never died because it's never been alive. I shrugged and sat back on the Chesterfield. There you are. That far out enough for you? Yeah, Jack said slowly and emphatically nodding his head. The women silently watching us. That's exactly nutty enough for me. I only wanted it confirmed. Becky. I turned to look at her. What do you think? She shook her head, frowning, then sighed. I'm stunned. But I think I would like that drink, after all. Bourbon and soda? We all smiled then, and Jack started to get up, but Theodora said, I'll get them, and stood. One for everyone? She asked, and we all said yes. Then we sat waiting, changing position, glancing out the window, till Theodora came back and handed drinks around. We each took a sip, then Jack said, That's exactly what I think, and so does Theodora. And the thing is, I didn't tell her anything about my impressions. I let her look at that thing and form her own opinion, just like I did with you, Miles. She's the one who first made the comparison with the medallions. We saw them making medallions once in Washington. Jack sighed and shook his head. We've talked and thought about this all day, Miles. Then decided to call you. You tell anyone else? No. Why didn't you call the police? I don't know. Jack looked at me, a little smile around his mouth. You want to call them? No. Why not? Then I smiled too. I don't know, but I don't. Yeah. Jack nodded in agreement. Then we all sat there for several moments, sipping our drinks. Jack rattled the ice idly in his glass, and staring down at it said slowly, I have a feeling that this is a time to do something more than call the police, that this isn't a time to pass the buck and let someone else do the worrying. What exactly could the police do? This isn't just a body. And we know it. It's... He shrugged his face, somber. 
something terrible, something I don't know what. He looked up from his glass, glancing around at us all. I only know. And somehow I'm certain of this, that we mustn't make a mistake here, that there is some one thing, the wise thing, the single correct thing, the one and only thing to do, and if we fail to do it, if we guess wrong, something terrible is going to happen. I said, do what, for instance? I don't know. Jack turned away to stare out the window for a moment. Then he looked back at us and smiled a little. I have a terrible urge to call the president at the White House direct or the head of the army, the FBI, the Marines, or the cavalry, or something. He shook his head in smiling amusement at himself. Then the smile faded. Miles, what I mean is, I want somebody, exactly the right person, whoever he is, to realize from the very start how important this is. And I want him or them to do whatever should be done without a mistake. And the thing is that whoever I got in touch with, if he'd even listened to or believed me, might be exactly the wrong person. Somebody who'd do exactly the worst thing possible, whatever that might be. But I do know this isn't something for the police. This is... He shrugged, realizing he was repeating himself and stopped talking. I know, I said. I have the same feeling. The feeling that the world better hope we handle this right. In medicine sometimes, on a puzzling case, an answer or a clue will pop up out of nowhere. The subconscious mind at work, I suppose. I said, Jack, how tall are you? Five ten. Exactly? Yeah, why? How tall would you say the body downstairs is? He looked at me for a moment, then said, Five ten. And what do you weigh? One forty, he nodded. Yeah, just about what that body downstairs weighs. You've hit it. It's my size and build. Doesn't especially look like me, though, or anyone else. You got an ink pad in the house? He turned to his wife. Have we? A what? An ink pad, the kind you use for rubber stamps. Yes, Theodora got up and crossed the room to a desk. There's one in here somewhere. She found and brought out an ink pad, and Jack went over, took it, then opened another drawer and brought out a sheet of stationery. I went over to the desk, and so did Becky. Jack inked the ends of all five fingers of his right hand, then held out his hand to me. I took it, then pressed the fingers carefully, rolling each one on the sheet of paper, getting a full set of clean, sharp prints. Then I picked up stamp pad and paper. You girls want to come? I nodded at the door. They looked at each other. They didn't want to go back to that billiard table, and they didn't want to stay up here waiting either. Becky said, No, but I'm going to, and Theodora nodded. Downstairs, Jack turned on the light over the billiard table. It swung a little, and I reached out to the shade to steady it. But my fingers trembled, and I only made it worse. 
The shade still swung in a tiny half-inch arc, the light spilling off over the edge of the table, then retreating to the open eyes of the body, leaving the smooth forehead in semi-dark for an instant. It gave you the impression that the body was moving a little, and I picked up the right wrist, concentrating on that, not looking at the face. I inked the ends of all five fingers. Then I laid the sheet of paper containing Jack's fingerprints on the wide table ledge beside the body's right hand. I brought the hand up, laid it on the white sheet, and rolling each finger, I took an impression of them all directly under Jack's prints, then lifted the hand from the paper. Becky actually moaned when we saw the prints. And I think we all felt sick, because it's one thing to speculate about a body that's never been alive, a blank, but it's something very different, something that touches whatever is primitive deep in your brain, to have that speculation proved. There were no prints. There were five absolutely smooth, solidly black circles. I wiped the ink off the fingers fairly well, and we all bent over, huddled in a circle under the swinging light, and looked at the darkened ends of those fingers. They were smooth as a baby's cheek, and Theodora murmured quietly, Jack, I'll be sick, and he turned to grab her. She was bending at the waist, then helped her upstairs. Sitting in the living room again, I shook my head and said to Jack, You've got the word for it all right. It's a blank, unfinished, and still waiting for the final impression. He nodded. What'll we do? You got any ideas? Yeah, I said, looking at him for a moment. But it's only a suggestion. If you don't want to go through with it, nobody will blame you. Certainly not me. What is it? Remember, this is only a suggestion. I leaned forward on the Chesterfield, forearms on my knees, and now I turned to Theodora. And if you don't think you can take this, I said to her, you'd better not try it. I'm warning you. I looked at Jack again. Leave it where it is, down on the table. Tonight, you'll go to sleep. I'll give you something to take. I glanced at Theodora but you stay awake. Don't sleep for an instant. Every hour, if you can do this, I want you to go downstairs and look at that body. If you see any hint of a change, hurry upstairs and wake Jack up right away. Get him out of the house. Both of you, get out right away and come right down to my place. Jack looked at Theodora for a moment. Then he said quietly, I want you to say no if you don't think you can go through with that. She sat, biting gently at her lip, staring at the rug. Then she looked up, first at me, then turned to Jack. What would it start looking like if it started to change? No one answered. And after a moment she looked down at the rug, nibbling her lip again, and didn't repeat the question. Would Jack wake up all right? Theodore looked at me. 
Could I wake him any time? Yes. Slap on the face and he'll wake right up. Now listen, even if nothing happens, wake him up if you find you can't stand it. You can both come down to my place for the rest of the night, then, if you want. She nodded and stared at the rug again. Finally, she said, I guess I could. She looked up at Jack, frowning. As long as I know I can wake him any time, I guess I could. Couldn't we stay with her, Becky said. I shrugged. I don't know, but I don't think so. I, I think just the people who live here ought to be here. I'm not sure it'll work otherwise. I don't know why I say that, though. It's just a hunch, a feeling, but I think only Jack and Theodora should be here. Jack nodded, and after glancing at Theodore to confirm this, said, We'll try it. We sat then and talked some more, quite a while, in fact, staring down at the tiny lights of the town in the little valley below. But no one said anything much that hadn't already been said. At around twelve, most of the lights in the town below, now out, Becky and I stood up to leave. The Belichicks got their coats and drove with us to pick up Jack's car. It was parked in the town parking lot, and when we stopped beside their car and they got out, I repeated to Theodora what I'd said about waking Jack up and beating it out of there if the body in their basement started to alter in any way. I got some half-strength second all out of my satchel and gave it to Jack and told him that one ought to get him to sleep. And they said good night, Jack smiling a little, Theodora not bothering to try got into their car, and we waved and drove on. In Mill Valley, on our way to her house, through the empty streets, Becky said quietly, There's a connection, isn't there, Miles, between this and Wilma's case? I glanced at her quickly, but she was staring straight ahead through the windshield. What do you think? I said casually. You think there's a connection? Yes. She didn't look at me for confirmation, but simply nodded as though she were certain. After a moment, she added, Have there been other cases like Wilma's? A few. Watching the asphalt street and the headlight beams, I watched Becky, too, from the corner of my eyes. But she didn't react or say anything for nearly a block. Then we swung into her street, and as I drew the car into the curb and stopped at her house, she said, still looking straight ahead through the windshield, Miles, I'd meant to tell you this after the movie. She took a deep breath. Ever since yesterday morning, she began slowly, keeping her voice calm, I've had the feeling that, she finished in a panicky rush of words, that my father isn't my father at all darting a horrified glance at the dark, shadowed porch of her home. Becky covered her face with her hands and began to cry. Chapter 5 I don't claim a lot of experience with crying women, but in stories I read, the man always holds the woman close and lets her cry. 
and it always turns out to have been the wise, understanding thing to do. I've never heard of a single authenticated case where the wise, understanding thing was to distract her with card tricks or tickling her feet. So I was wise and understanding. I held Becky close and let her cry, because I didn't know what else to do or say. After what we'd seen in Jack Belichick's basement tonight, if Becky believed her father was an imposter who resembled her real father exactly, I didn't know how to argue with her. Anyway, I liked holding Becky. She wasn't a big woman exactly, but she wasn't small, and nothing in her construction had been skimped or neglected. There in my car on the silent street in front of her home, Becky fitted into my arms very nicely, her cheek on my lapel. I was worried and scared, even panicky, but there was still room for enjoying the warm, alive feeling of Becky pressed close. When the crying tapered off to an occasional sniffle, I said, How about staying at my place tonight? The idea was suddenly and astonishingly exciting. No, Becky sat up, keeping her head ducked so I couldn't see her face, and began fumbling through her purse. I'm not frightened, Miles, she said quietly, just worried. She brought out a handkerchief and began touching it to the tear marks. It's as though Dad were sick, she went on, just not himself, and, well, it's just no time for me to leave. She looked at me and smiled. Suddenly she leaned toward me and quickly kissed me on the mouth, very firmly and warmly. Then she opened her door and slipped out. Night, Miles. Phone me in the morning. She walked quickly along the brick path leading to the darkened porch of her home. I watched her go. I sat staring after her fine full figure, heard the tiny gritting of her shoes on the rough bricks of the path, heard her light steps go quickly up the stairs and saw her disappear into the gloom of the porch. A pause, the front door opened, then closed behind her. And all the time I was sitting there shaking my head at myself, remembering my thoughts about Becky early in the evening. She was not, after all, turning out to be just a good pal who happened to wear skirts, Put a nice-looking woman you're fond of in your arms, I was realizing. Have her weep a little, and you're a cinch to feel pretty tender and protective. Then that feeling starts to get mixed up with sex, and if you're not careful, you've made at least a start towards something I'd meant to avoid for a while. I grinned then, and started the car. So I'd be careful, that's all. With the wreckage of one marriage still around me, I wasn't walking into anything serious just yet. Near the corner at the end of the block, I glanced back at Becky's house, big and white in the faint starlight, and knew that while I liked her fine, and while she was attractive, I could put her out of my mind without much trouble. And I did. I drove on through the quiet town thinking about the Belichicks up there in their house on the hill. Jack was asleep now, I was certain, and Theodora was probably in the living room staring down at the town right now. Most likely she was watching my headlights at this very moment, not knowing it was me. I imagined her sipping coffee, fighting the horror of what lay just under her feet in the billiard room.
building up her nerve to walk down there pretty soon, fumble for the light, then lower her eyes to that staring, waxy white thing on the kelly green felt of the table. Some two hours later, when the phone rang, my bed lamp was still on. I'd been reading, not expecting I would fall asleep for a while. Yet I had, right away. It was three o'clock. Reaching out for the phone, I noted the time automatically. Hello, I said, and as I spoke, I heard the phone at the other end crash down into its cradle. I knew I'd answered at the first ring, no matter how tired I am at night, I always hear and answer the telephone instantly. I said, hello, again, a little louder, jiggling the phone the way you do, but the line was dead, and I put the phone back. In my father's day, a night operator, whose name he'd have known, could have told him who'd called. It would probably have been the only light on her board at that time of night, and she'd have remembered which one it was, because they were calling the doctor. But now we have dial phones, marvelously efficient, saving you a full second or more every time you call, inhumanly perfect and utterly brainless. And none of them will ever remember where the doctor is at night, when a child is sick and needs him. Sometimes I think we're refining all humanity out of our lives. Sitting on the edge of the bed, I began to curse tiredly. I was fed up with telephones, with events and mysteries, with interrupted sleep, women who bothered me, when I only wanted to be left alone with my own thoughts, with everything. I thought about getting up, but didn't, turned off the light, and was nearly asleep again when I heard the steps tumbling up the porch stairs, then the quick, liquid peal of the doorbell, always so unexpectedly louder at night, followed instantly by a frantic, rapid tapping on the glass of the front door. It was the Belichicks, Theodora, wild-eyed, her face doe-white, incapable of speech, Jack, with furious, dead-calm eyes. We said only the bare words necessary to get Theodora half-carrying her up the stairs into a guest-room bed, a blanket over her, and some sodium amatol in a vein. Then Jack sat on the edge of the bed and watched her for a long time, twenty minutes maybe, holding her hand flat between his two palms, staring at her face. I sat in my pajamas on the other side of the room, in a big easy chair, till Jack finally looked up at me. Then I nodded my head and deliberately spoke in a normally loud tone. She'll sleep for several hours at least, Jack, maybe even till eight or nine in the morning. Then she'll wake up hungry and she'll be all right. Jack nodded, accepting that, sat staring at Theodora for several moments longer, then stood up, turning toward the door, and I followed after him. My living room is big, carpeted in plain gray from wall to wall. The woodwork is painted white, and the room is still furnished in the blue painted wicker furniture my parents bought for it. It's a large, pleasant room that still retains, I think, some of the simpler, more peaceful feeling of other times. We sat there, Jack and I, across the room from each other with drinks in our hands, and after a few sips of his, staring down at the floor... Jack began to talk. Theodora woke me, shaking me by the front of my shirt. I slept with my clothes on and slapping me so hard my teeth jarred. I heard her. Jack looked up at me, frowning. 
He usually chooses his words rather carefully, not calling me exactly, but just saying my name in a subdued, desperate kind of moan. Jack, Jack, Jack. He shook his head at the memory, bit his lower lip a couple of times, then took a deep swallow of his drink. I came to, and she was hysterical. Didn't say anything, just stared at me for a second, wild and sort of frantic. Then she whirled away, darting across the room to the phone, grabbed it, dialed you, stood waiting for a second, then couldn't stand still, slammed the phone down and began crying out at me, very softly, as though someone might hear, to get her out of there. Again Jack shook his head, his cheek quirking in annoyance at himself. Not thinking, I took her wrist and started leading her down the basement stairs to the garage and the car, and she began to fight me, yanking her arm to get loose, shoving at my shoulder, her face just wild. Miles, I think she'd have raked down my face with her nails if I hadn't let go. We went out the front door then and down the outside steps. Even at that, she wouldn't come near the garage or basement. She stood well out on the road away from the house while I got the car out. Jack took a swig of his drink and stared at the living room window, shiny black against the night. I'm not sure what she saw, Miles. He glanced over at me. Though I can guess, and so can you. But I couldn't take time to go see for myself. I knew I had to get her out of there. And she didn't tell me anything on the way down here. She just sat there, all huddled up and shivering, pressed tight against me. I kept an arm around her, saying, Jack... Oh, Jack, Jack, Jack. For several moments he stared at me somberly. We proved something all right, Miles, he said then with quiet bitterness. The experiment worked, I guess. Now what? I didn't know or try to pretend I did. I just shook my head. I'd like to get a look at that thing, I murmured. Yeah, me too. But I won't leave Theodora alone just now. If she woke up and called and I didn't answer, the house empty, she'd go out of her mind. I didn't answer. It's possible. It happens to everyone, in fact, to think through a fairly long series of thoughts in a moment. And that's what I did now. I thought about driving up to Jack's place alone. I imagined myself stopping my car beside the empty house, getting out of the car in the darkness, then standing there listening to the silence. Then I pictured myself walking ahead into the open garage, shuffling slowly across the dark basement, fumbling along the wall for an unfamiliar light switch. I saw myself actually walking into that pitch-black billiard room, feeling my way across it to the table, knowing what was lying there and getting closer and closer to it, my palms raised to find it, hoping they'd touch the table and not blunder onto that cool, unalive skin in the dark. I thought of bumping into the table then, finding the light overhead finally, then turning it on and lowering my eyes to look at whatever had sent Theodora into shocked hysteria. And I was ashamed. I didn't want to do what I'd let Theodora do. I didn't want to go up there to that house in the night. Not alone. I was suddenly angry at myself. In that same second or so of thought, 
I was finding excuses, telling myself that there wasn't time to go up there now, that we had to act, had to do something. And I took my anger and shame out on Jack. Listen, I was on my feet, staring furiously across the room at him. Whatever we're going to do about this, we've got to start doing it. So what do you say? You got any ideas? What do we do, for God's sakes? I was actually a little hysterical, and I knew it. I don't know, Jack said slowly, but we've got to move carefully, make sure we're doing the right thing. You said that. You already said that early this evening, and I agree. I agree. But what? We can't sit around forever till the one correct move is finally revealed to us. I was glaring at Jack, and I forced myself to behave. I thought of something turned across the room rapidly, winking at Jack to let him know I was okay now. Then I picked up the downstairs phone and dialed a number. The ringing began, and I had to grin. I was getting a little malicious pleasure out of this. When a general practitioner hangs out his little shingle, he knows he's going to be telephoned out of bed for the rest of his life, perhaps. In a way, he gets used to it, and in a way, never does. Because most often, the phone late at night is something serious, frightened people to deal with, and everything you do twice as hard, maybe pharmacists to roust out of bed, hospitals to stir into action, and underneath it all, to hide from the patient and his family, are your own nighttime fears and doubts about yourself to beat down. Because everything depends on you now. And nobody else. You're the doctor. The phone at night is no fun, and sometimes it's impossible not to resent those branches of medicine that never or rarely have emergency calls. So when the ringing at the other end of the wire was finally broken, I was grinning, delighted with my mental picture of Dr. Manfred Kaufman, black hair must, eyes barely open, wondering who could possibly be phoning. Hello, Manny, I said when he answered. Yeah? Listen, I made my voice exaggeratedly solicitous. Did I wake you up? That brought him to life, cursing like a wild man. Why, doctor, I said, where in the world did you learn such language from your patient's foul and slimy subconscious, I suppose? How I wish I were a head doctor, charging 75 bucks a throw just to sit and listen and improve my vocabulary. No tiresome nighttime calls, no dreary operations, no annoying prescription. Miles, what? the hell do you want? I'm warning you, I'll hang up and leave the damn phone off the oak. Okay, okay, Manny, listen. I was still smiling, but the tone of my voice promised no more bad jokes. Something has happened, and I've got to see you just as quick as possible, and it has to be here at my place. Get over here as fast as you can. It's important. Manny's quick-minded. He gets things fast, and you don't have to repeat or explain. For just an instant, he was silent at the other end of the wire. Then he said, okay, and hung up. I was enormously relieved, crossing the room toward my chair and my drink again. In an emergency calling for brains, or almost anything else, Manny's the first man I'd won on my side, and now he was on his way, and I felt we were getting somewhere. I picked up my drink, ready to sit down, and I actually had my mouth open to speak to Jack when something happened that you read about often but seldom experience. In a single instant, 
I broke out into a cold sweat, and I stood there stock still for several seconds, paralyzed and shriveling inside with fear. What had happened was simple enough. I'd suddenly thought of something. Something had occurred to me, a danger so obvious and terrible that I knew I should have thought of it long since, but I hadn't. And now, terror filling my mind, I knew I hadn't a single second to lose, and I couldn't act fast enough. I was wearing elastic-sided slippers, and I ran into the hall and grabbed up my light top coat from a chair, shoving my arms into my coat sleeves as I swung toward the front door. I had only one thought, and it was impossible to do anything but act, move, run. I'd forgotten all about Jack, forgotten Manny, as I yanked the front door open and ran out and down the steps into the night, across the lawn and the sidewalk. At the curb, I had my hand on the door of my car when I remembered that the ignition key was upstairs and it simply wasn't possible to turn around and go back. I began to run as hard as I could, and somehow, for no reason I can explain, the sidewalk seemed hampering, seemed to slow me down, and I darted across the grass strip toward the curb. Then I was running frantically down the dark and deserted streets of Mill Valley. For two blocks I saw nothing else moving. The houses lining the street were silent and blank, and the only sounds in the world were the rapid slap-slap of my slippers on the asphalt pavement and the raw gasps of my breathing which seemed to fill the street. Just ahead now, at the intersection, the pavement lightened, then suddenly brightened, showing every tiny pebble and flaw on its surface in the headlights of an approaching car. I couldn't seem to think, couldn't do anything but run on straight into that glare of bouncing light, then brakes squealed and rubber shrieked on the pavement, and the chrome end of the bumper slapped through the tail of my coat. You son of a bitch! A male voice, savage with fright and anger, was shrieking at me. You crazy bastard! The voice diminished behind me to a frustrated babble as my pumping legs carried me on into the darkness. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us tomorrow for yet another amazing story.